1: Guys, did you
3: know it's International Podcast Day?
0: Of course. It's on my calendar.
3: No, Not only did I not know it, I didn't even know there was such a thing.
2: And what is the traditional observance of International Podcast Day? I mean, do you like...
3: You record a podcast just like we are now, obviously. Also, is it for international podcasts or is it just an international day for all podcasts? Well,
1: if it, if it were in the UN parlance, it would be the International Day for Podcasts.
2: Oh. But who declared it International
1: Podcast Day? Does it matter? I mean, it's kind of like anyone who has Facebook has probably noticed over the last week International Daughter's Day and International Sons' Day, days that I literally had never heard of before this year, but have suddenly become must observe events. And International Podcast Day is clearly uh, just like that.
0: It's clearly been manufactured by Facebook and Hallmark.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, wait. Shane, I didn't get you a card. I'm so sorry. <laughs> How could you?
0: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the, what else? The shit show edition.
1: Happy podcast day, everybody. (laughs) That's international podcast day to you.
3: Well, This is the international shit show edition.
2: As we all hide our heads in our hands so that the world cannot see our shame. That's right.
0: That's right. You know, we used to know how to do presidential debates. I mean, we have a long tradition of them. Going back many years, but wow, last night was a was a a spectacle for the ages, you guys. It uh yeah, I'm a uh, Shit Show probably has about summed it up. And it seems to be the consensus take, which uh, you know, nine out of ten shit eaters can't be wrong, I guess.
2: Americans can finally agree about something.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was it was a hot, hot mess, and we're gonna talk about it. I am here in the Jungle Studio, virtual Jungle Studio, with my good friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys.
1: Hi, Shane. Hi.
0: Hopefully, uh, you know, the Commission on Debates has announced that there's going to be a structure change, whatever there that means. a
1: structure? <laughs>
2: going We're going to, to actually have a structure. They're going to bind and gag one of the candidates. <laughs> <laughs> they are going to muzzle him.
0: Yeah, you know, he, he might agree to it, too. Whatever, it's more theatrics. Ah, boy, we're going to talk about that and more on the podcast this week. First, Trump tells a white nationalist group to stand by as he further tries to erode confidence in the November elections, this time from the presidential debate stage. Election officials are bracing for a wave of litigation and other possible shenanigans when Americans head for the polls. And new information about Trump's taxes reveals he's massively in debt adding to long-standing fears that his finances make him vulnerable to foreign manipulation. Let us start with the aforementioned shit show. We all agree it was a shit show. That's not in debate. Um, but I want to focus specifically not on the politics, which is not so much germane, you know, to, to our discussions, but on some of Trump's comments that bear really directly, I think, on public safety during the election. Uh, He urged his supporters to, quote, go into the polls and watch very carefully. I think we can all agree that uh, he is not talking about the normal kind of poll watching uh, that may uh, be a feature of some election days. Uh, He continued harping on mail-in ballots again, this time saying, quote, this is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. Uh, Then when asked specifically to disavow white supremacist groups, uh, he wouldn't do it. Uh, and then when prompted by Joe Biden to, uh, to disavow the Proud Boys, this right-wing nationalist group, he said, quote, Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. Uh, there are reports already today that many in their ranks were jubilantly greeting what they saw as an order by the president, uh, prompting one Proud Boy organizer to tweet, quote, Trump basically said to go fuck them up. This makes me so happy. So, Tammy, first question to you on this. We've talked a lot on the podcast about Trump's efforts to undermine confidence in the security of the election and the outcomes. This, though, strikes me as quite different. This is a call to violent action, or or at least is being read by prominent supporters uh, and far right groups that way. Did you see it that way? And do you think that we've crossed some sort of threshold here uh, with the president's comments in the debate?
1: I do think that not necessarily the Proud Boys comment in isolation, but in combination with two other kind of issues that he raised over the course of the evening. I do think it crossed a new line or sent us down to a new low in terms of a sitting president delegitimizing the presidential election in which he is running so there was his refusal to condemn the white supremacist violence and his signal to them, which was done in a, you know, in a thinly deniable way to stand by, stand by, they take as an order, like stand by and wait for the call to act. But there were two other things. The, the first other thing was his very detailed, repeated, explicit insistence that the way the voting is happening right now is already illegitimate, that he already believes this election is fraudulent. And in that context, you know, when asked if he would accept the results, he he demurred. But he had already said, basically, I think this is rigged. This is happening right now. And then there was his call toward the end of the evening to you know, his supporters to go and watch very carefully at the polls. And in the context of what happened when early voting began in Virginia last week, and a group of Trump supporters showed up and blocked the entrance to the Fairfax County Courthouse, which is an early voting site, that to me was a much more explicit call by Trump to his supporters to go and engage in voter intimidation. And so to me, it's the three things together that are so troubling. He's saying to people who listen to him and believe what he says, I want you to intimidate voters and interfere with the process and ask lots of questions. I want you to believe that this isn't real, that the votes aren't real and the voting totals that you're told on election night aren't real. And hey, my militia goons, I want you to stand by and wait for a signal. Of course, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but wait for a signal from me and you will know what to do. And the three of them together, you know, are kind of a one, two, three punch, not only for delegitimizing the election, but for setting up a set of challenges to the order of the process and to the outcome. Now, you know, what can you actually do? Do about this? To me, is the challenge. This this guy, in theory, is you know the the head of the executive branch and supervises federal law enforcement and has the ability to to direct them um, in line with law and regulation. And so, you know, I think you've seen a degree of willingness on the part of people like Chris Ray to talk about, for example, the threat of white supremacist violence as a domestic terrorist threat. But I don't think you're going to see Chris Ray come out and say, you know, the president shouldn't have said that, that's dangerous, and we don't want anyone to bother people at the polls. And so I don't know where the pushback comes from, except for at the state level. I was thinking when he was talking about the illegitimacy of vote by mail and so on, I was thinking about all the Republican secretaries of state, all the Republican governors, all the Republican county election officials who are actually in charge of implementing this election and who believe in what they're doing and who believe that they and their party uh, fellows can win and they want to win fairly. Um, So if we see any pushback, I think that's where it would come from.
2: Ben. Yeah. So I, I think the very striking thing about the president's Proud Boys comment was that It was a real, you know, self-conscious layup opportunity that Chris Wallace gave him. And he clearly understood it as such. So, you know, Chris Wallace says, why won't you do this? Uh, I want to give you an opportunity now to do it. And Trump says, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to say about them? And then he's told, you know, I want you to make clear to – Tell them to, you know, refrain, right? To, to talk about them as though they're not your people, right? And his response is to the Proud Boys stand back and stand by, which is, of course, uh, I suppose the generous interpretation of it is that what he meant was stand down, but he didn't say that and I think was certainly amenable to the way everybody understood it at the time. But then the really striking thing, which is getting less attention, is that he then immediately pivoted and said, but something has to be done about Antifa. And I do think that in context, that is, I am giving you the chance. What do you want me to say? I'm giving you the chance to denounce white supremacist violence and his answer is, stand by, and but something really needs to be done about these Antifa people. And I think under those circumstances, particularly given his history of declining to denounce white supremacist violence, his history of coddling these people. Uh, it's very hard to understand it as anything other than a wink, which is precisely the way they did understand it. Susan?
3: Yeah, look, I I entirely agree with Ben. We're sort of, we're past the Occam's razor moment, right? This isn't just the, the simplest explanation. It is clearly the accurate explanation, which is that Donald Trump doesn't actually condemn white supremacists, and he is not at all uncomfortable with the affiliation of groups like the Proud Boys, and he is more than happy for those groups to make trouble on election day, either in order to prevent Joe Biden's voters from actually casting their ballots, or from casting some kind of you know a specter of illegitimacy over the entire event. And um, you know, I, I think we're sort of we're three and a half years past the point at which any of us can even sort of pretend to scratch our heads over what exactly is going on here. Um, Look, the single most remarkable fact uh, about the debate and remarkable feature about the debate last night um, was yesterday 745 Americans died from a completely preventable illness died that particular day and it barely even features, right? This is how sort of um, dysfunctional the erosion um, and the moment that we've reached is um, seeing sort of this, this, toddler bickering uh, sort of spectacle uh, taking place. You know, look, I did not watch the debate in real time, Um, something I really recommend to others for the future, uh, for future debates. Instead, I had a um, lovely conversation with a friend and and sort of catching up on things and then was able to catch up on absolutely everything that happened this morning in about 15 minutes, Um, you know, including sort of watching some of the relevant clips, um, in part because I wanted to spare myself the uh, the blood pressure exercise of just even watching this, um, you know, I, I don't think that it is especially surprising that it went as badly as it did. Um, you know, just sort of the points that that Tammy was hitting on earlier. One thing that is, I think, striking about this moment is we're, we've reached a moment in the campaign in which it's relatively clear that the more Donald Trump embraces these sort of rigged votes and and sort of claims of illegitimacy and leans into sort of the authoritarian autocratic tactics in order to win the election, the less likely he is to win a legitimate election, right? So as he's saying these things, it's actually undermining him with voters. And so the chilling thing about seeing him repeat these claims that he's made over and over and over again on the debate stage is it's so clearly revealed. His intention to follow that path and not to follow a path that. Actually, attempts to uh, you know win legitimate votes and change people's minds and sort of uh, win within the rules of the game and and that itself is um, is pretty disturbing and alarming. Um, you know the other thing that's amazing is there there was no issues at all really right. Ordinarily, um, you know, debates are a chance for candidates to talk about you know healthcare, national security, foreign policy. Right in years uh, and sort of election cycles of the past, we would be on this podcast complaining because our Particular issue set didn't get enough time, and oh look, they're talking about healthcare again. But we really think they should be talking about, uh, you know, U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia or, or you know, whatever other sort of issue of the moment, uh, you know, sort of salient and important. We're now we've we've reached an era of issue free debate, um, and, and I don't think anybody even sort of anticipates anything otherwise. And so um, I, I really think it just sort of reinforces and underscores like. This isn't about a progressive or conservative vision. This isn't about ideas. Like, this is about people who either buy in with the basic pre political, uh, you know, sort of understanding of democracy or they don't. And, and, you know, we're going to spend the next, I don't know, what, 38 days, however close we are to the election, trying to sort of jam this into the vocabulary and the manner in which we would ordinarily discuss debates and, and and election. Election discussion and and election issues, um, but at the end of the day, like we have all the information and voters have all the information, and and this spectacle is really just erosive and and frightening at this point. So. Two points, I think.
1: One, in response to Susan's noting that what Trump is saying and doing suggests that he knows he can't win an actual election. And so his intent is to steal it. I'm not so sure. I do think that there is a deliberate strategy of kind of depressing people about the process depressing them about the campaign and the candidates and sort of turning them off and thereby depressing turnout. And of course, depressing turnout means that his base, which is highly mobilized, polls show more highly mobilized than Biden's base, will have a relative advantage at the polls. And that to me makes more sense as an understanding of the strategy to the extent that the president demonstrated a strategy. The truth is that you know, leaders with autocratic tendencies who compete in illiberal elections, they want to win. They they like winning. And even dictators who have completely rigged elections, it's important to them to show that they win by large majorities. Um, so I think, you know, I think it would be weird, actually, if Trump didn't care about something that he could call winning, I don't think he wants to be seen to be stealing the election, just as we we've seen how hypersensitive he is to the idea that he didn't win it last time, win it fairly last time. So that's the first point. The second point is, you know, it was a depressing spectacle. And Ben mentioned, and I'm sure he's not the only one who had the reaction of last night of like, oh, God, what does the rest of the world think of us? The amazing thing, of course, is that just as our most important issues didn't get addressed last night, you know, newspapers around the world have as the top story, the outbreak of war in Nagorno-Karabakh between Azerbaijan and Armenia. In the Middle East, where I'm following things, the top story is the death of the emir of Kuwait at 91 after, you know, decades in in office. This is the number two story everywhere around the world, and you know people are kind of marveling at the chaos and the traded insults and you know one Saudi paper noted that Biden called the president a clown a racist and a liar, and Trump attacked Biden as a puppet in the hands of the radical left, which is actually a good summary <laughs> but but the bottom line is like the rest of the world has other shit going on and Our shit show is our shit show, but the more of a shit show it is, the less it actually means anything to them.
0: Well, this is a good transition then to our next segment, where a well-known national security journalist, Bart Gelman, over The Atlantic, uh, a colleague and friend to a number of us here, has published a lengthy and provocative piece last Wednesday, uh, which is probably putting it too delicately. It actually made a lot of people, I think, crap their pants um, the Ad- Atlantic's editors said they were pushing the piece out early ahead of the print magazine, citing its quote, urgency. Um, Bart walks through a number of scenarios that, to one degree or another, all involve Trump not conceding defeat in the election, something that he posits that Trump will never do under any circumstance, even in the face of overwhelming evidence that he lost. Um, and then he goes on through the various ways that the Trump campaign. And Republican officials can, through litigation or putting pressure on electors or other kinds of chicanery, throw the election results into doubt or even get out ballots thrown out such that the results are ultimately either swayed towards Trump or we descend into this kind of unprecedented level of chaos where we simply can't determine who actually is the president. Uh, and, you know, the, the piece kind of, you know, it, it posits some rather almost... Hollywood scenarios at some point, I think, but you know, Bart is making the argument that these are things that we have to take legitimately seriously now because they could actually come to pass. Um, The piece has gotten some pretty strong pushback, we'll say at the outset, from people who thought that Bart is overreacting and is not actually paying enough attention to some of the legal and electoral safeguards that are in place in certain states to prevent some of these worst case scenarios that he imagines. And we can talk about that. But Ben, let me start with you on this. I mean, overall, Do you buy the premise of Bart's piece, which is that, to borrow from the pre-9-11 metaphor, uh, the election system is blinking red, and there are many signs of a kind of pending doom or chaos that people in positions of authority have failed to recognize and therefore may not be ready to prevent?
2: My bottom line answer to that question is sort of, or I buy some of the premises, but not all of them. First of all, you know, the fact that the lights were blinking red in the months before 9/11 did not mean that 9/11 was inevitable, right? It still meant that Al-Qaeda had to get pretty lucky that a whole bunch of people in the intelligence community uh, had to screw up and that a whole lot of things had to go wrong for us and right for them in order for the situation to play out the way it did. And so I think you can say the lights are blinking red without concluding from that that a you know an electoral disaster is especially likely much less certain. So let me put some uh meat on those bones. Do I buy that Donald Trump will not concede defeat? Absolutely. That I I think Bart is over speaking maybe a little bit when he says there's a 0% chance that Trump will concede. He can't know that it's that low, but I do think Trump has given every indication of being uh, interested in the integrity of the results only if they support his side. So the question becomes then, how much does it matter that Trump does not concede defeat? And here is where I think Bart, creates a little bit more momentum in the direction of disaster than than the facts warrant. Imagine for a minute that in 2012 or 2008, Mitt Romney or John McCain had not conceded defeat. It wouldn't have mattered. There's a certain amount of automaticity in the process that things just happen. The default is that votes get counted. The default is that when one side has more votes than the other, the secretary of state in the relevant state certifies the election in their favor. And that creates a certain kind of automatic outcomes that it takes a pretty heavy lift to overcome. So the relevant uh, situation, the one that I think that Bard is describing, really only comes into play if the election is close enough in key states, and by key states, I mean all of the key states, right? So if that a different person wins, if you count them one way than if you count them another way. That has happened in our recent history in the United States once, which was in 2000. It happened 100 years before that in 1876. It does not happen very often. The election four years ago was extremely close. There was no doubt who won it. And so, you know, the sense in which I agree with Bart is if we find ourselves in that situation, will Trump pull out all the stops, play really dirty, and try to persuade state legislatures to intervene on his side? Yeah, I think he probably will. I think the likelihood that we end up in that situation is not all that high. One reason I think of that is that the polls are actually not that close. So is it possible? Yes. Should everybody be nervous about it? Yes. Is it a high probability event? I think not. And I think the much greater likelihood is we will have perhaps delayed, but very clear results from the election that will preclude that kind of gamesmanship on the president's part? Susan.
3: Yeah, so I 90% agree with what Ben just said, right? right. Overall, I think it is true that the most probable outcome is that Joe Biden wins decisively and pretty quickly. That said, I do think there's a difference between sort of the situation in which there is the the election is close enough that there is a reasonable sort of disagreement right there's there's a reasonable question about the outcome in particular states there's there's sort of that point on the spectrum and then there's the point on the spectrum at which the state of the the outcome is sufficiently uncertain to create a litigation foothold right so there could be a situation in which a state it's relatively clear relatively early that ohio or pennsylvania has has voted for joe biden and yet there still could be enough technical uncertainty or the margin could be narrow enough that it could provide trump and the trump campaign Uh, and Trump lawyers a foothold to really go in there and try and erode and erode and erode sort of confidence in that early initial understanding. And so, you know, I I don't think that it's just about does Biden have a clear victory? It it would need to be by a large and decisive margin and one that sort of eliminates the possibility of being able to use litigation for mischief. Um, And that's, you know, I think there's one place in which um, the Gelman article has a line that just strikes me as sort of. Unequivocally true, and that's that he says. The worst case, however, is not that Trump rejects the election outcome. The worst case is that he uses his power to prevent a decisive outcome against him, right? And so this notion of Trump using the powers of the office, using his access to intelligence, using the bully pulpit, in order to manipulate and expand the period of time in which there is some uncertainty. You know, I, I do think that there's a real and live possibility of that. That. Separate and apart from this question of does he refuse to to sort of leave the Oval Office? I'm also sort of, I've seen a lot of people sort of tamp down or argue against this by saying, well, you know, once Trump has been defeated, the the Republicans will all abandon him. Um, And so even if, right, Mitt Romney had refused to concede, you know, or or Al Gore had refused to concede, eventually sort of the parties would have made a decision um, and it would have been clear. You know, I think about the incentives of Republicans here. Situation in which it's very clear that Joe Biden has, in fact, won the election. And there's also enough of a basis for the Trump campaign to drag out some kind of litigation in some states. I don't think that the clear incentives for the Republican Party are to say, Trump lost, like, you know, shut up about it, let's all move on with our lives. Um, I think the incentives for them are, look, anything that erodes the legitimacy of a Biden presidency is good and politically beneficial to them. And so allowing that to sort of play out and bloom and expand, I I actually don't think that the Republicans would see that significant of a downside. Um, And so I think, again, in that moment, we're sort of projecting this, uh, you know, sort of come to Jesus, you know, embrace of, of democratic principles that uh, we certainly haven't seen thus far. Um, you know, there's also the reality that the Trump campaign has been sort of engaged in an aggressive Pre-game uh, and sort of ground game in swing states, designed to sort of help create precisely these uh, legal questions and sort of suppression questions um, that might help them, you know, essentially get a foothold to undermine sort of le- the legitimacy of outcomes. And I also think it's significant, um, and the Trump campaign has been vocal about this, that this is the first year after the expiration of the consent decree, you know, thank you, Justice John Roberts, um, in which actually for the first time, um, you know, federal officials will not necessarily be able to prevent the Republican Party from engaging in a lot of tactics, which could in fact create real questions about sort of the legitimacy of outcomes in particular, at particular polling places. And so I'm with Ben sort of, you know, in, in, in the sense, of the big picture um, and the the overall probability and likelihood. Um, That said, I I think whenever we start to examine the sort of 100 or 100 million different ways that this could go wrong um, and the ways in which that might be amplified by a president and an outgoing administration and a right-wing media ecosystem um, that could have really, really dramatic, damaging sort of long-term consequences. And um, I think this is a moment in which if we all sort of of freak out about it ahead of time. Um, And it turns out Joe Biden wins and we all look very foolish. So be it. Um, That's much better than the alternative of sort of saying, well, we don't want to be reactionary or sort of appear to be hysterical. And therefore, um, you know, we're going to really discount these remote probabilities. Um, Should they come to pass? I think we will uh, very much regret not having taken um, these small but catastrophic possibilities more seriously.
0: Yeah, it seems like err on the side of be hysterical is probably advisable in this situation. Uh, Tammy.
3: I'm going to push back
1: on precisely that sentence, Shane, because I, I think there is a cost to getting hysterical about the, the possibilities that Bart Gelman describes. And I think that we saw some of that play out last night. I, I spoke a few minutes ago about what I believe was Trump's strategy to depress turnout. And I think one of the most important things Biden did last night, and he did it twice or three times, was he looked straight at the camera and he said, it's not up to him. You, the American people, get to decide who will be your president. You need to vote. Part of the challenge, you know, you want reporters to be examining the possibilities and digging into the hypotheticals and really giving people information on what to worry about and what to prepare for. But you don't want people to come away from reading those news stories confused and uncertain and doubtful about the efficacy of the process itself. I can't tell you how many people I know, not even just like my parents' generation, but my generation and even younger, who after reading Bart Gelman's article, contacted me or posted on Facebook and said, now I don't know what to do. I was gonna, I had my plan to vote. I was gonna vote X Way, but now I don't know if that's right. Maybe I should try to vote in person. You know, and that creates a lot of confusion. We know from tons of voter behavior studies that having a plan to vote is really important to the likelihood that you actually will cast your vote. And a whole lot of people's plans to vote just got thrown into confusion by the revelations in this article or the allegations in this article and the conversation that it has created. I don't blame Bart Gelman for that. Let me be very clear. I do think it's important for this stuff to get reported, but I don't think we should be freaking out about it. And I do think it's really important for candidates who care about the legitimacy of the process, to reinforce to voters the legitimacy of the process. So that's point one. Point two is that I almost feel as though this issue of the legitimacy of the electoral process has been polarized as much as everything else in this campaign to the point that Biden supporters or Trump opponents are now engaged in a sort of logical leap that is entirely unjustified, whereby they think the only way Trump can win is if he steals the election. And if everybody votes and all the votes are counted, Trump will lose. There's a sort of embedded assumption that if everybody votes and every vote is counted, Trump will lose. I think we have to remember this is not a done deal. This is a close race. It's not as close as the Clinton-Trump matchup was four years ago, but it is close and it will get tighter over the next three or four weeks. And what we most need to do is believe that, you know, if like me, you don't want Trump to remain president, the most important thing is to make sure that everybody you know who agrees with you about that has a plan to vote and gets out and votes because we cannot assume the outcome in any direction. And all of this reporting about the possibilities for fraud and malfeasance just, to me, make illegitimate outcomes more likely.
0: I feel better now. <clears throat> You're making me feel <laughs> Yeah,
1: so what's your plan to vote, devotion, Harris?
0: <laughs> DC is mailing all of our ballots to us very
1: hopefully. I, I already got mine, in fact. Have you gotten yours?
0: Uh, I have not gotten mine. Should I be No, they said
1: they would start sending them out the first week of October. October 1st is tomorrow. So if you don't have it in a week, then I think you should get upset.
0: All right. Well, I am one of those journalists who votes. Just FYI and for the record. Um, Well, we can't predict the future, but we can look to the past and find... Many revealing things about the present. How'd you like that transition? That's
1: so philosophical, Shane.
0: Yes, it was tortured. Um, (laughs) The New York Times team of reporters that wrote uh, last year uh, what I think is the most definitive story about the state of Trump's finances is out with another monster of a story uh, that published over the weekend, I think it was Sunday night. Uh, This one uh, appears to be based on years of Trump's tax returns at the federal and state level Uh, for a, a kind of dizzying array of hundreds of different companies that he owns and the information that was used to compile those returns. They tell many stories, uh, including the fact that the president uh, effectively has paid no taxes in some years and recently paid a whopping sum of $750 in federal income tax. We should say federal income tax, to be clear. Um, But the big one for our interest, I think, is that he, according to these records, is facing a gargantuan mountain of debt, specifically $421 million for which he is personally responsible. These are loans that he personally guaranteed. It's not clear, by the way, the source of all of those loans, which we can talk about. Uh, It comes due within four years. And based on his current finances, it appears that Trump doesn't have the income to cover it, despite the fact that he appears to have made more than half a billion dollars off of his role in the celebrity uh, or in the apprentice franchise. Susan, we should establish that at the outset. Uh, that if this were any person other than the president or perhaps an elected member of Congress, he would almost certainly never be granted a security clearance uh, and therefore probably could not work in much of the government. Uh, These vulnerabilities are precisely the ones that make someone vulnerable to selling out the country in exchange for cash. These are the kinds of vulnerabilities that foreign intelligence services look for to put leverage on someone to get them to spy for their governments. What did we learn in this piece that sheds more light on how vulnerable the president is to foreign influence or, frankly, even domestic? And and we should note that he will continue to be vulnerable whether he's reelected or not.
3: Yeah, so I think there are two sort of clear national security concerns about the the president's tax returns, um, sort of separate and apart from like the big domestic questions, and also frankly the separate questions about whether or not we're looking at uh, criminal tax evasion or evidence of uh, criminal wrongdoing on other financial documents that he's filed that do not appear to match the representations uh, made in these documents. Sort of putting all of that aside, um, I think this question of the debt is the big question. um, and for precisely the reasons that you just mentioned. So one is that anytime somebody is in a financially perilous situation, that becomes a, uh, a source of possible leverage and concern. And anyone who holds a security clearance has to make these ongoing financial disclosures because, uh, it, you know, the U.S. government is aware of that, right? And they want to make sure they understand, you know, exactly who you owe money to on what. Are you in any kind of financial stress? Because that is a known point of vulnerability. Um, I did a Lawfare podcast last night with Adam Davidson of The New Yorker, Margaret Taylor, and Dan Dresner of Tufts University. Um, And and Dan was really sort of making the point that he thought that the the pure idea that that Donald Trump is in lots and lots of financial pressure and that is a national security concern, um, you know, he sort of pushed back on the idea that that was uh, necessarily true, uh, basically just because the president also has really immense assets and, and despite sort of the mockery of the headlines, it is in reality a very, very rich person with access to lots and lots of money. Um, it just happens to be that uh, on an annual basis, he loses more money than he happens to make. The more sort of, uh, I think, dangerous question is who, the, who he owes the money to. Um, so uh, sort of broadly, this money is owed in sort of you know, $100 million and $50 million chunks to a group called Ladder Capital um, and also to Deutsche Bank. But it's not sort of the traditional Deutsche Bank that listeners might be familiar with. It is a part of sort of Deutsche Bank's private banking uh, system that really means we don't know who actually lent him that money um, and why. And that raises the question of whether or not there are foreign governments, foreign countries, um, you know, or or some kind of foreign or or, or frankly, even domestic um, uh, interests that that essentially the the president uh, owes a ton of money to. And that's a national security Concern because it is a reason to fear that the president of the United States might make decisions not in the actual best interests of the United States, but in his his own personal financial interests. Um, and so, the idea that we don't have the answers to those questions, that we didn't have the answers to that, those questions four years ago, and that we don't have the answers one month before uh, you know the next election, you know, I, I think these are um, these are really really significant core concerns. Um, And we've already seen in practice the ways in which Donald Trump's business interests and financial interests clearly shape policy, right? So uh, the president's former national security advisor, John Bolton, said he believed he couldn't understand why the president refused to, for example, impose sanctions on Turkey following Turkey sort of purchasing uh, missile defense systems from the Russians. Um, There was bipartisan support in Congress, uh, you know, to to apply these sanctions. Trump was resistant. John Bolton says he thought the reason for that was because he had a financial and business relationship. Um, you know, we, we see the extent to which, despite the president sort of saying he was not going to make any new foreign deals, um, in fact, has extensive foreign entanglements and is actually paying more taxes to foreign countries that he pays in federal income tax in the United States. And look, um, the framers of the Constitution didn't want this to happen. They understood exactly how dangerous it is. That's why they had the emoluments clauses. That's why they insisted that a president accept a salary and not be paid anything. Else, because the the plain and very very real danger of somebody in this position using the powers of his office and, and using sort of the position of public trust in order to enrich himself or uh, sort of it, 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 along the same lines prevent himself from from you know spare himself financial catastrophe that is is so plain and apparent to anybody um, and so there's nothing about this that's a that's a surprise but like there it is in black and white four hundred and 21 million dollars of national security risks that like we only know the very very tip of the iceberg about.
2: Yeah, so I I I think there's a a weird aspect of this that has a kind of emperor has no clothes quality to it. So we have known for a long time that Deutsche Bank was lending a lot of money to Trump. In fact there has been a whole lot of reporting about that. And we all kind of assumed that Trump had a lot of debt that Deutsche Bank was carrying this whole idea that he they were kind of the only lender who would do business with him even when parts of Deutsche Bank wouldn't anymore another part stepped in, right? All of this is stuff that we've known and you know the, the the, the consequence of releasing this information, which of course should have happened more than four years ago, is quite salutary in the in the sense that the most dangerous aspect of this from a national security perspective is when the president is lying, people know it, but the, the public does not know it. So when the president says, as he did over and over and over again during the 2016 election, you know, I built one of the great companies. It has very little debt. You remember that? How often he would say about the Trump organization, very little debt. And of course, that was a lie. And the holders of that debt know it's a lie. And the public doesn't know it's a lie. And this is a point that... You know, Pete Strzok has made about the about when he said, I have no business with Russia, right? And the Russians know that's a lie. He knows that they know it's a lie. The public doesn't know it's a lie. And that's what gives them leverage. This is that on a very grand scale. He is lying, been lying about his finances publicly for a very long time. The people who hold the debt know that he is lying he knows that they know that he is lying. And that creates a lot of leverage, and that leverage is worth more than the $421 million of apparent leverage from the returns. And so I think Susan's point is exactly right, but it's actually worse than that because every time he has lied about it, and he's lied about it over And over and over again, the value of the leverage goes up.
0: You know, and I want to put in a plug here for something that Jack Goldsmith wrote on Lawfare, kind of building off of the he and Bob Bowers' recent book, you know, proposing that we should create a law, essentially pass a law that prevents this kind of thing from ever happening again by doing some very fundamental things like requiring candidates for president to disclose their tax returns um, by, you know, requiring them to, to vest in certain instances. Uh, you know, it, it strikes me that, you know, what Trump has done is such a, you know, outsized, grotesque violation of the norms. It is just so far outside the realm of what anyone thought possible in terms of a president refusing to divest that of a business interest. I mean, we're talking about somebody with half a billion dollars in debt that we don't know really where it goes. I don't know what you all think, but it seems to me that particularly if, you know, Biden is the president and Democrats take the Senate, that that might be a slam dunk. I don't know after Donald Trump's presidency what the constituency is of any elected member of Congress and saying, oh, no, it's totally fine if future presidents don't disclose their tax returns. Maybe that's naive, but this one just seems like a layup.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I do think it's an easy one for members of Congress to vote on. And, you know, something that especially for Democrats who want to show that they're trying to deal with corruption in politics, you know, this, this is a layup, as you say, how much impact it really has is the question. For me, I mean, I know this New York Times blockbuster. We, you know, after years of working, we finally got the tax returns and now we're going to do this multi part series of stories. It's exactly the kind of thing that inside the Beltway, we're all poring over it and we're astonished at the details and horrified. And outside the Beltway, people are saying, well, good for him if he can figure out not to pay any, how not to pay taxes. I would love not to pay taxes. I just can't afford lawyers as good as his lawyers, right? It's like, I don't think it creates a lot of resentment, frankly. And so I, I really, I mean, it is horrible, and it does create a national security vulnerability in precisely the way that Susan and Ben were saying. I just think that at the end of the day, Our politics has gotten to the point and our public's sense of fairness, what's fair and what's not fair, has been shifted in ways that make the impact of this far less than we might expect. And that kind of makes me sad. I think it's a manifestation of loss of trust in our institutions and loss of willingness to invest in our government as something that provides services to us. But I think that's the reality we're in.
3: I mean, one thing I would say sort of in response to that point is you know, to point to the research of our colleague Vanessa Williamson at Brookings, um who's done a lot of research on this sort of question about um, how Americans feel about paying taxes and specifically about individuals who don't pay their taxes and who use uh, legal loopholes to avoid paying their taxes. And actually, you know, the research says that overwhelmingly Americans believe people should pay their taxes. and uh, and they they do feel resentful. Um, whenever these sort of wealthy individuals are able to get out of that. And so uh, most of these surveys were conducted in 2014. Maybe it's possible that Trump has so moved the window on the question that it wouldn't look, uh, that the data might uh, be different. But actually, I think this is an area in which, um, you know, the, the research suggests that this is something that the American people actually do care about. How dare you contradict my punditry with <laughs> facts
1: and analysis,
3: Susan? I cited the Brookings Institution, That's so GMA. inconvenient.
0: All right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, Ben, why don't you go first?
2: The last time my object lesson on rational (laughs) security was a crow, it was because I was eating it. Um, And I forget when that was that I uh, had to eat a steaming hot plate of crow about something. There's so many times. So many times. (laughs) But recently I have become uh, very interested in Corvid's. Partly because...
1: Ben, what's a corvid?
2: A corvid is the uh, the family of birds that includes crows, ravens, magpies, uh, and other cool things. They are notably smarter than other birds, much smarter than many mammals. And I have been learning, um, including on some recent episodes of In Lieu of Fun, about crow behavior and their degree of intelligence. And specifically, that they remember human faces and uh, hold grudges against people and teach other crows that, you know, that wittest guy, for example, is not good for crows or bad for crows. And uh, they're one of the very few animals that does this socially. And so I decided it was really important uh, that I be on the good side of the crows in the neighborhood because I don't want to walk out of my house and have all the crows whispering, "Hey, that that wittest guy, he's bad for the crows." So uh, I bought a large bag of uh, peanuts in their shells. Crows, by the way, prefer peanuts in the shells because they're a puzzle. They will uh, they they like to mm. open them. And I have been very uh, assiduously attempting to make friends with the crows in my neighborhood. And just before, we did rational security um we came in for rational security i had a breakthrough which was uh, i went outside there were some crows outside and i took some peanuts and i threw the peanuts at the crows and they did not wait for me to disappear before they started eating the peanuts this is a little bit of a breakthrough because in all previous attempts To make friends with crows, they have taken the peanuts, but they've waited until I was well out of sight to do so. And so uh, the crows and I are getting closer. Pretty soon they will be attacking my enemies and following me down the street in loyalty.
3: Yeah, I'm just, um, you've learned that a bird is vengeful and holds a grudge and your instinct is appeasement. Yeah. What what should we conclude from this? (laughs) As a strategic question, <laughs> I, I'm going to need to spend some time with. This. I don't negotiate with
2: terrorists, but. Uh, but you appease crew. But that is a limited to a human audience. With birds, I'm totally down with the idea that the whole thing is an extortion racket.
0: I'm still questioning these birds' intelligence if the opening of a peanut is still a puzzle to them.
2: Okay, so if you question these birds' intelligence – We don't
0: have time for no, this. No, no, no. I'm
2: just going to – look, at least they're not freaking aliens. Um, and, and at least they're real. Oh, uh, If you oh. question – You and your crows,
0: them, buddy, you're on the list, okay? I, I, when the time comes I, – yeah.
2: I want you to go watch – and this is, can be the real object lesson – Uh, A YouTube video, the the YouTube video series by a woman who uh, goes by the YouTube channel, uh, Falconry and Me. And she has a series of uh, videos about her raven named Fable. And they are awesome. And you will come away really impressed with the intelligence of Corvids.
0: Okay, I will take that challenge. (laughs) Um, My object lesson is a documentary I'm recommending, which I just finished. It's actually a four-part documentary that just premiered recently on Netflix, uh, Challenger, The Final Flight. It is a, a kind of exploration of the um, failures leading up to the explosion of the space shuttle Challenger in 1986, which of course, listeners will probably all remember was the one that was carrying the first teacher into space, Krista McAuliffe, but it's actually a lot more than that. I mean, in addition to being a really interesting kind of investigative reporting piece on uh, the, not just the group thing, but the bullying from senior managers that went into a pretty just uh, appalling unwillingness to embrace NASA's own safety protocols and to launch the space shuttle under what they knew to be truly dangerous conditions. It's also a really interesting story because it goes into the histories of the other six people who were on that flight, uh, most of whom, of course, we don't remember their names and know very little about uh, one of the first, uh, the protagonists, really, if you want to call it that, of the story, that kind of is the main narrator is a woman named June Scobie Rogers, whose husband Dick Scobie was the commander of of Challenger, and it's just a really great, well done uh, piece that you know it takes a lot of time to explore the culture of these other six people who were on there and who were professional astronauts. Uh, and went through a totally different kind of training that Krista McAuliffe and, and kind of came at this event from a different way. And it's this time when, you know, NASA is trying to get people excited in the space shuttle program again, because it's become routine and it's become boring. And so, you know, they try to do this uh, sort of, uh, 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 you know, I won't call it a PR campaign, but there's really a sort of public uh, um, spectacle, I guess, that is built up around the idea of putting a civilian into space. Anyway, it just deals kind of like effortlessly with all these issues and tells a really great story. It's, it's deeply moving. It's really upsetting for those of us who remember it or for people who, like me, who this was kind of the first big news event that you remember. Uh, but check it out well with your time. Uh, you can watch it in about three hours over a number of days. Challenger the final flight. Uh, thumbs up. Susan. <laughs>
3: My object lesson is a list, a list of the best political podcasts to help you make sense of the 2020 election. And on that list, ladies and gentlemen, rational security. Uh, This is on uh, time.com, and they describe rational security as... Listening to Lawfare Institute's Rational Security podcast feels like having an intellectually engaging but enjoyable policy debate with your nerdy friends if your friends just happen to be experts in national security and the law. I assume naturally that the author is referring to you guys as nerds and not me, um, who oh, no, obviously am sort of the cool center um, <laughs> of the rational security group. The hip, uh, the hip one, as the, the most. said. Spastic. Rational.
1: You're like the Marsha Brady of rational security.
3: Yeah. Exactly. We all want to be like you. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Ben is Alice. Ben is the crow looking out the window from the outside. Ben
0: is Sam the butcher. Who's Marsha
2: <laughs> Brady?
1: God, oh, God were you name. born in the 1960s or not?
0: Ben, even your crows know about the Brady Bunch. Oh, that Brady.
2: <laughs>
1: okay, I know the Brady
2: Bunch. I just didn't remember that there was a Marsha Brady. I <laughs> am. <laughs>
3: I like how our hip cultural reference is the Brady Bunch, yeah
2: that <laughs> only three out
0: of four At any of it, right. you know.
3: so even sad. though we have terrible taste in uh, popular media. Time magazine does not, and so thank you um for including us on our list. We are honored to help you make sense of this election and happy yes. international podcast <laughs> and day, happy, happy podcast day <laughs> to one and all
0: <laughs> well it's a happy day but maybe such a sad moment now because that is the end of this one of the best politics podcasts for this week i know it's so sad uh rational security is of course brought to you by lawfare you can find uh brady bunch dvds at lawfare.crowstore Store.
1: No one watches DVDs anymore. Oh, that's true. They just that's stream true. it Don't on And crows do not pay
2: for things. They they just take them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> crow doesn't give a shit. He's just gonna take your peanuts. It's kind of like a honey badger. Yeah, there you go. Look at that crow eating your peanuts. Rational Security, you can, of course, find us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review, particularly if you are a crow. I don't think we have any crows who've downloaded the podcast yet. Uh, Maybe Ben will give you some extra peanuts.
3: Five peanuts.
0: Five peanuts.
2: If you are a crow and listening to Rational Security, I want to know because that's... That would be mm-hmm. rip roaring cool.
0: I would love to know if you're a crow who's listening to Rational Security and you're making fun of me for the aliens. Our audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. The shoe is the shoe, the shoes, the shoes are worn in this family by Jen Pontya Howell, who is our editor and producer. Music this week by Donald Trump with his oddly threatening version of You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet.
3: I like it. I like it sort of screamed at us. Yeah,
0: demonically. Yeah. I think I'd be good. I think it'd be good. Sophia Yanker just sit in the background and bang on the piano as accompaniment. It'll work. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittis, Tamara Kaufman Wittis and Susan Hennessy, we will see you next week, hopefully. Bye bye.
1: When
2: you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.